Welcome. Thank you for joining us here on the Construction Leaders Podcast presented by CMA, where each episode will provide interviews with diverse perspectives, as well as trends that are affecting the construction and project management industry and beyond. You'll hear us cover a variety of topics such as the economy, ethics, leadership, innovation, diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as lessons learned. On behalf of CMA, I'm your host, Nick Soto, alongside my colleague, Carly Trout. Today, we're going to talk about something that most of us know a little something about in some fashion. It's a little different than what we've done in our previous podcasts, where we've talked about the outlook for economics for the construction industry, where we've talked about the workforce, and we've talked about building your own empire and starting your own organization. Today, we're going to talk about something that for many of us, knowing this little thing called standards and how essential it is to the jobs that we hold. Standards can ensure the safety, quality, and reliability of products and services. They can facilitate trade, protect the public, the environment, and they can help increase the reliability and the effectiveness of many of the goods and services we use. And for a lot of us, when we think of standards, we think of the International Organizations for Standardization, known as ISO, or OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. But there are a lot of other standard organizations around the world. With us today is the American Society for Testing and Materials, known as ASTM. ASTM is a nonprofit organization that develops and publishes approximately 12,000 technical standards covering the procedures for testing and classification of materials of every sort. Here representing ASTM is Molly Limyak, their manager of technical committee operations. Welcome, Molly. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do and who you've brought with you today? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here today to talk about ASTM and some of the work we have going on in our standards writing uh, committees. My role at ASTM is as a staff manager to help oversee and facilitate some of the activities that take place within the standards development process. And I'm joined here today by two of our ASTM volunteer members who are leading efforts for two important standards. Uh, First is Julie Kilgore, She's the technical lead for ASTM E1527, which is the phase one environmental site assessment standard, and Holly Niebuhr, who's leading our efforts for the property resilience assessment standard, which is in draft form, and that's referenced under work item number 62996. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Molly. Uh, We appreciate you guys being here. Why don't you tell me a little bit more about what ASTM International does? Of course. Um, as you mentioned, ASTM is a voluntary global standards development organization, and it's in our mission to develop standards that positively impact public health and safety, consumer confidence, and overall quality of life. We're actually one of the oldest and largest standards development organizations in the world. In fact, next year, ASTM will be celebrating its 125th anniversary. And a fun fact about ASTM is that our first standards were created for steel used in the railroads in the late 1800s. And some of those early fundamental standards are still used and referenced today. Well, 125 years, it's a long time. So tell me a little bit about standards and how standards get developed. Within ASTM, individuals interested in the development of a standard would join one of our 147 technical committee areas and actually work with other experts, such as Julie and Holly, engineers, manufacturers, testing labs, academics, and others to write and ballot the standard through ASTM's process. The end result is the publication of a full consensus voluntary standard that bears the ASTM logo and designation. 
Well, Julie, thank you for joining us. Um, we really appreciate you being here to talk about the phase one environmental site assessment. As Molly mentioned, there are over 120 committees um, with ASTM International. So can you tell us a little bit about how you first became involved in one of those committees? You bet. Yes. Um, and thank you. I appreciate being here with you all today. Uh, I I got involved in the environmental industry in the late 1980s. I was working with a geotechnical engineering firm, and they do a lot with soil and groundwater. So when underground storage tanks regulations started to come into effect in the late 1980s, engineering firms were uh, interested in expanding their services to include some environmental services as well. And one of the firms that I joined was Wasatch Environmental in the early stages of the company. And when our lead engineer realized that ASTM was getting involved in developing a standard for doing these pre-acquisition environmental site assessments. We were all calling them different things at the time. As an engineer, as a geotechnical engineer, there are a lot of ASTM standards that drive the work that is done in that industry. And he said to me, he said, okay, if ASTM is getting involved in this, we need to be there because ASTM develops the standards that will dictate what we do in this work and we need to be there. And that's how I got started with this committee. And then it just went from there. So Julie, I've heard that the phase one environmental site assessment was recently revised, that the committee released revisions. But before we get into the specific revisions and what's changed in the assessment, um, can you give us a brief overview of the standard? Yes. So the standard itself, the standard practice was developed, as Molly had said earlier, if there's in industry interest in developing a standard, they come to ASTM with that request. It's important to realize that ASTM has no technical expertise at all. ASTM provides a platform and a very rigorous process for industry professionals, those who use a standard and those who purchase the services or the goods that come out of the standard. It's a, it's a process for users and producers to come together to agree on a consistent process that is expected to achieve a consistent deliverable or consistent endpoint. And so what was happening uh, in response to some federal legislation is there was a lot of high dollar litigation where a number of parties were being held responsible for very large costs associated with EPA's response costs on large contaminated sites. And we're talking in the millions. And there was a requirement under that federal law in an effort to avoid that liability that one must do and all appropriate inquiries consistent with good commercial customary practice to demonstrate that someone who bought or operated or occupied a property didn't contribute to a release and, and did adequate due diligence prior to acquisition of that property. But nobody knew what that meant. Nobody knew what was customary and commercial practice. So they came to the ASTM table to really for a liability protection, a method for achieving that liability protection. And that's really still the framework. That is still the objective of this particular standard is someone is going to acquire or operate or occupy a commercial piece of property, and they need to demonstrate that they did sufficient due diligence 
so that they understand that either they are not stepping into a likely contaminated property or alternatively that they, that they may be uh, dealing with a contaminated property and that they will be prepared to manage that contamination properly moving forward. So that's really the, the background that led up to the initial development of the standard. And then the revisions, you know, under the ASTM umbrella, all 12,000 standards under ASTM, we have an obligation to revisit a standard no later than once every eight years just to ensure market relevance and you know that things are still working well. Unlike laws and regulations that sit on the books for decades or a century, we can't do that with ASTM standards. So our task group comes together every so often to just take a look at the standard and either let it sunset because it's no longer relevant or we can reballot, just approve, reapprove as it is. Everything's working fine and no need to make any changes or adjustments. Or we can bring a task group back together and, and look at the standard where could we use some tweaks and improvements uh, and then go through the balloting process of approving those changes? Yeah, that makes total sense to just revisit, make sure everything is still applicable and, and useful for the, for the people using it. So who are the folks that are using this assessment? So the user groups that were participating, that have participated in the task group that I lead have been uh, a lot of lenders, developers, um, construction managers in, in, uh, in companies, in, in large national firms that, that are regularly acquiring property. We have regulators, we have attorneys, a variety of interests for those who are either seeking that liability protection as they acquire property or are advising other clients who are looking for those liability protections, but also regulators, uh, municipalities, because this standard is also used in preparation for brownfield assessment grants. So there's a just a, a variety of interest in utilizing this due diligence process of evaluating the likely environmental condition of a property. Julie, I got two questions to follow up on with this. One is what are the most critical changes in this current revision? And two is most standards go through a public comment period. Is even in the revisions, do uh, is there an opportunity for uh, our listeners to make comments on these kinds of revisions? So uh, those are two very different questions. So let me answer the second one first, because that's the easier question to answer. The review and comment period, when we go through the balloting process, there are several levels of balloting that we need to go through. We start with a subcommittee, which is a smaller group, uh, and, and they will have the most relevant experience related to that particular standard. And once we achieve a level of agreement within the subcommittee, then it goes to the larger committee. And again, we get then broaden the review and comment. And then when we go out for full uh, society review and approval, anyone can, even if you're not a member, these all go out to members who have asked to participate in these subcommittees and committees. So they're there, again, on a voluntary basis and to provide their, their expertise. And Molly can correct me on this if I'm wrong, but 
pretty much at anywhere along the line uh, or anywhere in that process, that balloting process, a member of the public can submit a comment on the ballot because we had some of those in this last round, correct, Molly? Yeah, so we actually have a public uh, review. It's called Society Review that you mentioned. Um, And that's typically at the same time that it's on a main committee ballot uh, within the committee. And at that time, yes, the public can certainly add comments and they're addressed the same way as a member's comments would be addressed. And some sort of action has to be taken on it. And then to your to your other question about what were the primary revisions. So getting to that point, and let me just give a little bit of background on what we what I do anyway as a task group chair when I launch these, because this is the third revision round that I've taken the 1527 through. So I'll bring the task group together and we'll all just brainstorm about in my perfect world, how, how would I change this standard? What would I do? And there are a lot of good ideas that come out of that. Not all of those ideas have enough energy behind them to get someone to lead the effort and and to lead that charge or champion that cause. Some of them they do and they spend some time and then we'll come back to the task group with a recommendation of no change because they didn't have a better idea or a way that you know would make sense to address. So, so we decided to narrow it down to some core issues. And really our primary issue, our primary objective on this particular standard has been to clarify existing language where there is, has been, where we're seeing differences of opinion and interpretation in the industry so that we can get some more consistency in applying the standard um, and, and strengthening the deliverable. If we hear one thing each time we go through the revision process or, or is the user community, those who need to read these, these reports, uh, if we could help, you know, make them stronger, make them easier to read, make them more, you know, make them more user friendly. So those are really a lot of the objectives. But the third one also is is just to touch back into industry to make sure that we are that this standard is reflecting good commercial customary practice. What is happening? What are, what are we doing here in this part of the country? What does this consultant do? What does that consultant do? And try to bring all that together to reflect a national, a practice that can generally be consistently applied across the country and and set a bar of effort. And then a consultant can move up and down from that bar as needed to to achieve uh, the end result, but at least a baseline that we can all work from. So what we found in our, and the other thing that we will also, I have a a group of attorneys that work on our standard because there is a lot of litigation around environmental due diligence and contamination and nothing, I say nothing finds bad stuff better than a track hoe. So there's a lot of litigation around this environmental assessment process. So we have, uh, we have several, seasoned attorneys and and we have them take a look at litigation and case law and what's happening in industry that also gives us some indicators of where we can strengthen where we can strengthen the practice so there were several areas where we did some tweaking and some working but but the primary i would say a good indicator of the major changes are the ones we discussed the most and had the most debate about And for this revision process, I would say it's the historical research. Um, We have a real challenge in our industry where we have developed a standard practice that offers a series of instructional 
components, but then leaves a lot of the specifics to the judgment of the environmental professional doing the work because so many, all these sites are in different locations. They have site specific factors and different kinds of research. And then when you take that standard practice that emphasizes so much, that maximizes professional judgment, and then you shoehorn that into an industry that demands low bid and in professional judgment devolves into what can I get fast and cheap? And that's where we start seeing the pain points. So historical research was one of those. Um, and it's been a problem for a while. We almost took it on in 2013, but it didn't seem to quite hurt bad enough. Over the last eight years, the pain has gotten worse. So we knew we knew we had to take this on. And so I would say the, one of the major changes in this revision is to, to, to require more specificity and more robust instructions on the historical research, both for the subject property, the property that's the subject of the assessment, but also for the adjoining properties, because those are really the highest risks uh, of likely contamination to a property that, that you're acquiring or working on. That makes a lot of sense. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor, the Construction Manager Certification Institute. Today's ANSI accredited certified construction manager brings professionalism to the project and provides leadership by unifying architects, general contractors, engineers, and facility managers to successfully complete the project. The CCM is familiar with the latest techniques and technologies of construction, from prefabrication to building information modeling. He or she thoroughly understands sustainable design and construction, how projects are financed, and how risks can be minimized and effectively shared. The Certified Construction Manager is a communicator, a facilitator, a problem solver, a professional leader. Certified Construction Managers have the proven knowledge and experience to deliver all these values for every project. Make the CCM part of your strategy for success. For more information on the Certified Construction Manager, please visit cmcertification.org. Well, let's jump over to Holly now, because we're also here to talk about the property resilience assessment. Um, Holly, can you tell us how you became involved with ASTM? Yeah, I'm just so happy to be here with you all. Um, and it's, it's such a treat to actually be presenting alongside Julie. So my background is in environmental property assessment work. And uh, I am now the CEO of a property consulting firm, but I have done environmental site assessments in accordance with 1527 for over 20 years. And I always like to say that they're the life story of a property. You're identifying the life story of a property and its surrounding sites to try and understand if there's an impairment uh, resulting from an environmental condition there. And um, so Julie has just been a pioneer in our industry. And just to really I think share with your listeners a little bit about the importance of ASTM and the importance of 1527 before we start talking about the one I'm working on is for your listeners, um, it may not realize that environmental site assessments are really ubiquitous in the commercial real estate transaction finance and development space. I like to say anytime a property is changing hands, if there are you know, informed people involved, they will conduct an environmental site assessment to understand if there's any environmental issues 
and liabilities, as Julie mentioned earlier. And it happens all throughout commercial real estate finance. So anytime someone is getting a loan, there's typically an environmental site assessment. What that means to uh, property in the U.S. is that you know, regulators, there are only so many agencies that can oversee environmental quality, but because the 1527 phase one environmental site assessment standard is utilized in all these uh, transactions, we have identified and cleaned up environmental issues across the U.S. over the last however many years we've had the standard as a result of having this process as a result of having a look at these issues during these transactions and financing opportunities. So it's, it's had a huge impact on the environmental condition of communities and properties across the U.S. I think some, sometimes people outside of our industry might tune out when they hear about environmental site assessment, but I want to make sure people understand how impactful this is to protecting our drinking water in our communities making our communities safer. So the 1527 standard has had a huge impact on property across the U.S. And the standard that I'm working on now is still in draft. We have a lot of work to do. And I will also say that I know in a prior episode of this podcast, you all did some discussions around career path. And I just wanted to you know, really invite your listeners to get involved with ASTM. I got involved with 1527 probably a decade after Julie did, and I've learned so much, connected with so many colleagues, clients, peers in the industry, and now um, here I am today working on a new standard to assess physical risk to buildings associated with natural hazards and climate change. I will tell you a little bit about the standard itself. Um, So it's going to be a three-stage process. The first stage is to screen what natural hazards, including those related to potential climate change, might be impacting a property. The second stage is understanding the vulnerability or sensitivity of the property to those hazards. And the third stage is identifying resilience measures that could be employed so that the building will perform better in the event of a hazard. Can you um, talk a little bit about this being a new standard and how that, that maybe the process is a little bit different than something that's already established, like the revisions that Julie was working on? Correct me if I'm wrong, but this is a standard guide and not a standard practice, and Molly may want to jump in here, but do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how your work might be different? Yes, we are working on the development of an ASTM guide where 1527 that Julie talked about is a practice. A guide is more general, creates awareness for the reader, but is not as prescriptive as a practice. And with the development of the guide, we have gathered a number of people from the user community. That would be the developers, lenders, owners, investors, as well as engineering firms, architecture firms, design companies, consulting firms who are already providing these types of assessments to put together an overview guide that will explain the process from start to finish. So identifying how to screen for the hazards, identifying how to assess the vulnerability and sensitivity at the property level, and then how to identify the resilience measures. 
So we have a very broad group, I think almost 100 people from both the user and producer, what we call the, the consulting provider community, collaboratively working on this. The idea is to provide the guide as an overview. And then from that, we will have the opportunity for more specific practices to be developed. So for instance, the guide will cover a variety of natural hazards from flood to wind to wildfire to geologic. And it will be important that from our guide, specific practices emerge specific to those hazards. So we imagine this is just the beginning of uh, an approach to explaining resilience assessment, resilience consulting. And from this, a number of practices will emerge. You did a great job connecting the standard that Julie's working on on phase one environmental assessments and how it relates back to the construction industry. Connect the dots with your standard that you're working on now, this new one and property resilience assessment to the construction industry, please. Sure. So I think it's really important for all of us who serve those who own, develop, operate commercial real estate to understand the pressures that our clients are facing. And I feel, and I'm certainly, you could see this in the headlines that there's a greater awareness now than ever before as a result of increasing property loss information that people have access to, that we're seeing that natural hazards, including those related to climate change, are creating greater losses at the commercial real estate level. And so that's affecting all of our clients essentially, right? So how can we help our clients address this risk? On the property consulting side, we're looking at how can we give people better information to make good decisions. People have different time horizons that they're going to be involved with properties. They have different goals depending on if they're a lender or a developer. But we we believe information is power, right? So if people have access to understanding what the natural hazard impact might be at a property, then they can build modifications with those concerns in mind so that the property performs better, retains its value, and also potentially has lower insurance costs. So how this might affect the construction industry, I would think that Similar to us on the property consulting side, climate and natural hazard concerns are becoming infused in everything we do. It's a kind of a a lens that we need to all be having some awareness around. Having discussions with your clients about whether the proposed development might be subject to some natural hazards that haven't been considered and how do we want the property to perform? Are there modifications that can be made? I want to be clear that the property resilience assessment scope that we're working on is reflective of work that's already occurring. There's a lot of this type of consulting already occurring, and there's no uh, ASTM standard for it to refer to in this way. So, um, you know, that's the benefit of ASTM is it can provide a a common language, uh, common um, milestones of a process, and also qualifications for the professionals. So again, this work is already occurring, but I think we will see in the years ahead a greater awareness of natural hazards and climate risks throughout all phases of property from the design, architecture and design phase to the construction phase to the operations phase. And we want to help provide a way to bring these issues to light earlier on in the process. 
How are all these standards used in the marketplace, Molly, that ASTM is working on? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so once a standard is developed and published, it's really up to the marketplace to determine how to use and adopt them. So oftentimes industries will voluntarily use a standard as best practice and as a standard of care uh, in the manufacture or procurement of their products and services. Other times standards could become mandatory through laws, codes, uh, and regulations. And we really allow the market to determine how the standard should be used and applied. So in the case of E1527, this standard is referenced by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency um, in the AAI rule that Julie talked about earlier. Not every standard is a mandatory standard, though many mandatory standards become that way because they use voluntary standards as the basis for rules and laws and different codes. So Holly mentioned earlier about ASTM having a lot of other standards being developed and that there's opportunities for other committees to get involved with working on these standards. So what other standards on environmental and constructions are being developed right now that maybe you have some openings that you want to attract some people to? Some of our listeners may want to get involved after hearing some of these great standards you're working on. I'm a little bit of a standards nerd. I'm really wanting to hear a little bit more about the standards for greener and lower carbon concrete and uh, the hemp ones that you guys are working on and lacing some of the the concrete with hemp instead of rhubarb. I'm really kind of an ASTM standards nerd, but I'd love to hear how some of our listeners can get more involved involved with some of these projects that you guys are working on, some of these standards? Sure. I love that you're a standards nerd, just like the rest of us. Um, So our process is really open to anyone with an interest. It's built on openness and transparency, and that multi-stakeholder approach really helps us ensure that a variety of viewpoints are considered. So there's certainly many areas that people can get involved in the construction industry. We have the standards in our environmental space for remediation and corrective action within our E6 committee that Holly's a member of. We have standards for structural and durability of performance of buildings, air leakage and ventilation. We have standards for gypsum and mortars and concrete pipe, cements, various types of metals, ferrous and non-ferrous. So there's a number of standards and writing committees that people can get involved in. I would suggest that you go to our website, ASTM.org, and you can find a whole list of our standards and technical committees there. Oh, that's wonderful, Molly. Thank you. Julie and Holly, thank you for spending some time with us today and providing us some wonderful insights into these standards. I'm sure uh, our listeners, there's a lot of them out there who want to follow these new standards and probably help evaluate and be on some of these committees. So again, thank you for providing us some of these insights. Coming up on episode six, we'll have Brent Darnell from BDI, who many of you know from our CMA events, to discuss this construction leadership library and some simple advice he can give to help transform your career. Make sure you download and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media at CMAA underscore HQ. On behalf of CMAA, I'm Nick Soto with Carly Trout. Thank you for listening.